You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Ishtar, a bearded goddess of sex and war from ancient Mesopotamia. She was hot-tempered with a lust for conquest, and her priestesses were transgender. Oya, Yoruba goddess of the wind, storms, lightning, tornadoes, thunder, commerce, and war. She rules the destruction that comes before positive change. Atalanta, fleet-footed huntress and heroine of ancient Greece who joined the Argonauts. She helped slay the Caledonian boar and refused to marry any man who couldn't beat her in a foot race. She also became a PDA lion. Eats Papa Lotol a skeletal warrior goddess of the Aztec pantheon, sometimes depicted with butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives. This episode is part of our Women of Myth series, where we interview podcasters, authors, scholars, and more about the amazing women of world mythology. It's based on our book of the same name, Women of Myth, illustrated by the amazing Sarah Richard. It's available wherever books are sold, or go to ancienthistoryfangirl.com to find links to a bookstore near you. You know, men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Jen has a little bit of a voice thing today. A little bit. It happens. However, our episode is so exciting that, like, Who needs my voice? We've got a more exciting guest voice today. We are so thrilled to welcome Natalie Haynes to the podcast. Welcome, Natalie. Hello, hello. I don't think your voice sounds bad at all. It's like it's a very film noir kind of vibe you're giving out. So that's just the look I'm assuming you're going for. I've now got you in full black and white, (laughs) cigarette and a holder. Right? (laughs) Cigarette and a holder. Yeah, belted trench coat, incredible lipstick. That's what I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's how she records all the time, really. (laughs) I assumed. Yeah, I assumed. Jen is just that glamorous. Natalie Haynes is an internationally best-selling author of fiction, including A Thousand Ships and Stone Blind and The Children of Jocasta and nonfiction Pandora's Jar. She is the host of the incredible BBC Radio 4 show and podcast, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics. She's a radio and TV presenter and a comedian, and we've been such huge fans of her for such a long time. We are so happy to have her here today to discuss Medusa, monsters, and women of mythology. Welcome, Natalie. Oh, thank you. So can you tell us where your love of ancient Greek and Roman mythology came from? Yeah, I started really young. I had really good teachers at school, and it's quite rare in the UK as everywhere now, um, even in Greece, to be taught um, Latin and ancient Greek. But I was really lucky, and I was uh, studying Latin from the age of 12 and ancient Greek from 14 and ancient history from 16. So I was just a massive nerd. I had great teachers, and they filled me with joy for the thing that they were very passionate about. And Greek myth has kind of been the thing that I've never been able to put down. You know, I kind of move away for a little bit. I do something else for a little while, but I always come back to Greek myth. 
always have, I think. So I wrote my dissertation on Greek tragedy, my undergraduate dissertation, and obviously all my books have interacted one way or another with Greek tragedy. Um, even the one that's set in the modern world is technically a, a retelling of the Oresteia and the ancient world ones, the Bronze Age ones, are all very much going back to ancient Greek sources, vase paintings, sculptures um, and literature, which luckily I can read, and, uh, and, and negotiating with those. Yeah. You're you're amongst nerdy friends. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> we are the nerdy. Yeah, not one person in this conversation has had all their lunch money for a long time. That's what I'm learning. <laughs> I unfortunately do not read ancient Greek or Latin. Jen studied Latin in middle school and high school and felt personally bullied by Cicero. I did. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing with Cicero. He's really hard until he isn't. And then, you know, he's okay. But he's never easy company because, you know, the philosophy stuff is amazing. But he's such a bumptious man. It is really tempting to sort of reach through the pages of history and just give him a little slap around the face and go, stop it, Cicero. Stop being so pleased. But then, you know, those the, the Tusculan disputations are beautiful, just beautiful. So he can do it. <laughs> he just has to try a little bit harder. <laughs> Oh, I feel so seen right now. <laughs> I think my favorite is the Philippics, where he just absolutely trashes Mark Antony and Fulvia. I'm here for the in Catalina one and two as well. I think anything which begins, how long, oh, Catalina, must you continue to try our patience? It's something I'm here <laughs> for so dramatic. all day long. Plus one of my very favorite examples, I know, of rhetoric where he says, oh, on the subject of the rumors that you killed, or he, he, because he's speaking about him, even though he's right there to the Senate, he says, on the subject of the rumors that he killed his wife and child i'll pass over those and i won't mention them <laughs> <laughs> minor detail barely worth mentioning really it is incredible the most hit and run moment You're like did you do, did he do <laughs> That's such a cicero thing it's like excuse me wait a minute <laughs> and unless it was for the greater glorification of cicero i feel really confident that he only had a limited interest in it why do you think the stories of ancient Greece and Rome are so enduring? Why do we keep telling them again and again in new ways, in old ways, through the ages? Because they focus on human beings. So myth is a mirror, right? It reflects the time in which you encounter it as accurately as the time in which it was created. Um, and in the cases of Greek myth, obviously, they're created across hundreds of years and thousands of miles all at the same time. That's where you get so many contradictory versions of, of the same character or gods or goddesses who are matched with other gods and goddesses and uh, syncretized across the Greek and then Roman worlds. And so the thing that is particularly enduring about it is that at the center of it all are very human figures. And that's even true of their gods. All right, so the gods in, for example, the Iliad, one of our earliest literary sources, are incredibly human. They are essentially incredibly petty because nothing is at stake for them they can't they can't die and they're incapable of change or any kind of you know character development so they're basically like super powered toddlers you know they, they they have everything in common with a child who just stands there stamping his foot and screaming because it can't have a thing it's decided at once and yet still we keep coming back to this very human center so over and over again we find with these myths even when there are gigantic you know gods versus giants battles happening there's still something incredibly human about these gods. They may be super powerful, but they have very human motivations. The um, ancient philosopher Xenophanes said, if horses and dogs had hands and could draw, their gods would look like horses and dogs. And he's, of course, correctly observing that the Greeks had made their gods in that image. And so I think while the most sort of famous stories to come to us from Greek myth, the Trojan War, the labors of Heracles, Hercules, if you prefer, the story of Odysseus and uh, Jocasta, the house of Thebes, the story of the Oresteia, when Clytemnestra 
encounters the difficulty of Agamemnon, let us say. Um, these stories all focus on human responses, on human emotions, and incredible provocations. And, you know, Aristotle thought that Greek tragedy in particular sort of prepared us for the worst times in our lives by allowing us to sort of live it through one remove. And so there are two different kind of routes to catharsis, I guess. Uh, one is through comedy, where you laugh at the misfortunes of other people. Another is through tragedy, where you sort of experience them at, at one at one remove. And they both get you to the same place, which is to feel like you can navigate your way through your world a little better today because of the thing that you just read or saw or thought about in Greek myth. And so I think probably that's why, you know, there are other myth cycles like Norse myth, which, you know, have the most fantastic theogonies behind them, I suppose. Like, you know, there's a gigantic tree and there's a really big snake and, the, and all of those things are compelling, but they don't they're not as narcissistic as Greek myth, where we are allowed to see ourselves at the centre of everything all the time. Man is the measure of all things for the Greeks, never less so than in their myth. So we put ourselves at the centre of these stories thousands of years ago. And, and as consumers and people in dialogue with those narratives now, we're still putting ourselves at the centre of the story. So I think that's why. That is so fascinating the way like you talk about catharsis because we've studied this too and like the just the idea of um, theater as a communal emotional experience you know way back at the beginning of Western theater. Jen, remember the goat song? I remember the goat song. Yeah. Oh, I have a beautiful cartoon on my wall drawn by the very brilliant Chris Riddell uh, in which I am talking about Tragoidos goat song at a, an event and he's drawn a picture of me with a microphone in my hand obviously in the middle of blurring on about Greek myth uh, and behind me he's drawn a little goat and uh, he's captioned it Natalie talks about goats <laughs> it's really good <laughs> your new novel Stone Blind is about not just Medusa but about the other women who have roles in her story why did you decide to tell this story from so many different perspectives and which character did you find it easiest to write well, I think I have form for writing a polyphonic novel. I did it with A Thousand Ships, where I wanted to tell the story of the Trojan War from both the Trojan and Greek women's perspectives and the goddesses as well. And, you know, occasionally some rogue extras like Penthesilea, who fights for the Trojans, but isn't Trojan. She's an Amazon, of course. And so I felt when I started to work on Stone Blind, I thought this would be a, a single voice novel and that I would just focus on Medusa. And it became clear almost immediately that actually I didn't want to write it that way because it felt like, as these stories always feel like to me, that they reach out in multiple directions all the time. And I think we have a tendency to think that women's stories are sort of intrinsically domestic, that it's just this kind of one family and it's within one family. And, you know, sometimes that's true, I guess, with the story of Jocasta. That really is a kind of household family saga and, and it has ramifications through the generations, but it doesn't particularly flow outwards, it flows down. But with a story like A Thousand Ships with the Trojan War and with a story like Stoneblind, the story of Medusa, it really felt like there were just so many. First of all, there was a protagonist in in Medusa, but there was also an antagonist. And that was clear to me immediately. And that if I was going to have an antagonist who was a goddess on Mount Olympus, Athene, then she would be constantly coming into the story in different purposes in mind, I suppose. It was always going to be the case that there were two. And then, you know, I suppose I could have, have told Perseus's story from his own voice, but I wanted to begin with Danae, his mother, because again, it's a story that I think people often kind of half know, oh, you know, she's the one who's used impregnates having, you know, taken on the form of a shower of gold. And you're like, I mean, give me a minute on this. And then there's the story of Andromeda, who I think most people now probably think that Perseus goes on a quest to bring back the head of Medusa in order to rescue a princess, because that's the version that appears in Clash of the Titans from 1981, I'm going to say, the Harryhausen version with Harry Hamlin. <sighs> Harry Hamlin, um, as Perseus. 
And um, I know he's much too old for either of you, but he really wasn't much too old for me. So I'm entitled to still have a crush on Harry Hamlin at this stage, I feel. I think that's justified. Okay, good. I'm glad we all have this moment. <laughs> I remember watching that movie in uh, in school, and I think it was maybe elementary school, middle school. You know, it was older, but like the the work on it, and I rewatched it recently with my husband, and I was like, "This is so good." Yeah, it is. It's great, but it does give us a slightly. I mean, every version of a myth is as valid as every other in in lots of ways, but it does give us a sense that there's a sort of time honored hero quest narrative going on here, in which Perseus goes on a quest to bring back a monster's head to save a pretty lady, and it's like, well, sure, but if we look at the archaeological evidence for it, then we have Gorgonea, Gorgon heads, long before we have full-bodied Gorgons, and then we have full-bodied Gorgons, and they're on, you know, we can see these on temples, uh, the Temple of Artemis, found in Corsaira, now in the Archaeological Museum of Corfu, plenty more of those, we see them on uh, in doorways, they have a liminal role, so they are scary, sure, but they're also apotropaic, they protect us, they're, and they're often in these liminal spaces because they're scaring away a, a bad thing, perhaps a mugger or a burglar if you put it on your door. Um, and protecting the people within. People put them on shields. And then Perseus comes to the story relatively late. So I really wanted to undercut this notion that essentially Medusa existed as a monster for Perseus to overcome because it is entirely the other way around. In archaeological terms, we have Gorgon heads and then we have Gorgons. And then I think somebody probably goes, why have we got all these heads separated from these bodies? And Perseus enters the narrative. But he is the latecomer, not her. And so I felt like he'd had plenty of chances to, to make his own case over the millennia since his story's been being told. And honestly, when it came to doing things like the scene with the Graii, the grey ladies of the sea, the spirits of the sea, or the scene with the Hesperides, I was mainly trying to look at his story as it's framed through all these female characters. It seemed really surprising to me that, again, I thought of Perseus as, well, he's the son of Zeus, so of course he is sort of hyper-masculine. It's like, oh, right, really, everybody he deals with in the process of getting to the Gorgons is female. That's actually kind of surprising. The guy who sends him on his quest is a king, for sure. He's a man. But generally... They're female characters. And honestly, when it came to that, I'd seen so many, often very beautiful, you know, Renaissance masterpieces, artworks where, you know, a, a beautiful woman is bathing naked and a man accidentally sees her, that the chance to, to switch that scene round and say, well, what happens if a beautiful young man is just really hot and tired and he sees some lovely water and gets in and then there's like 15 Hesperides around the outside going "Ooh, a naked boy <laughs> it's like well how is that going to work you know what there's that great line of Margaret Atwood's of course that you know men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them and that is a, a it's in the back of my mind the whole of the way through this book because Perseus is constantly outraged by the way women don't take him seriously except for his mother who of course is perfect in every way but he is he's increasingly violent as the novel goes on so it became as far as I was concerned it became just too tempting to allow these female characters to look at him with quite different eyes quite quite clear and cold eyes occasionally but the anger that he feels I think isn't particularly directed at women it's directed at power in a way he's kind of contending with a extremely patriarchal society which it which really works in his favor you know he is He's literally the son of the king of the gods. He's incredibly favoured. Everybody has to kind of crowd around to help him out. The one thing they don't have to do is like him while they do it. And largely that's the case. So, yeah, he is, he is one of those extremely privileged young people to whom everything is given and who somehow still manages to feel like a victim. And I can't lie to you, writing that was just enormous fun. It was just really, really fun finding a way of expressing that in a way so that he would sound true. 
And like, these were his real emotions, but at the same time, so you'd be sitting there going, dude, what is wrong with you? So yes, I had tremendous fun. I mean, to be fair, most of his encounters are with deities. And so the idea that they would ever understand him, it's like, well, would you understand the motivations of an ant? Probably not. There is a kind of culture clash between them. But yeah, he's he was fun to mock, is all I can tell you. It reminds me a lot of the difference between him and Heracles, who we see sort of towards the beginning-ish of the book. And, you know, Athene comes and is like, hey, we need you to do this thing. You need to do this thing. And he just goes without any questions. Well, I mean, you can really see this different response to different heroes on vase paintings, for example. And I don't think it's I don't think it's just my modern sensibility looking at the vase paintings of Perseus. I, I see them as extremely ambivalent at best and and outright critical, perhaps even. And they they look all the more so when you compare them with with Heracles, for example, or you know, there are plenty of other lovely heroes you can uh, look at on Greek vase paintings, but Hercules, Heracles is the most popular character from Greek myth to survive to us on vase paintings. And when you see a vase painting of him carrying out a labor, which are the most popular bit of his story to be told, it usually looks like he's having a ball. You know, he's having a tremendous time. There's a hydra with necks everywhere. And there he is with his sword and the stumps that they're trying to quarter. It looks great. Or, you know, the Nemean lion where he's trying to choke the lion. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's formed a meme of its own of you know, Hercules trying to feed a cat a pill, etc. And there are just loads of uh, cats like, ah! That's exactly how it goes when I give my cat a pill every time. <laughs> you see, it, you're channeling the Nemean lion. My favorite one is the Arimanthian boar. And there's a fantastic vase painting of him bringing the Arimanthian boar back to Eurystheus, the king who's asked for it. And Eurystheus bitterly regrets his original choice, which was to ask for the Arimanthian boar to be brought back to his palace, because he is hiding inside a pot, which is painted onto a pot for full metatextuality. And he's sort of cowering in this pot. And Hercules is holding this pig over him face down. So it looks like they might at any minute kiss. It looks funny. It looks like the artist is having fun. When, and that whoever bought it would be like, oh, this is hilarious. Whereas you look at the vase painting on, uh, there's a hydra in the Metropolitan Museum in New York, for example, which shows Perseus sneaking up on Medusa. And I use the word advisedly. He's on tiptoe. He's deliberately trying to be quiet. He's uh, wearing shoes that belong to Hermes, the winged sandals of Hermes that are going to enable him to make a getaway. He's wearing the hat of darkness that belongs to Hades. It looks a bit like Hermes's hat, but from our literary sources, almost certainly is the one that belongs to Hades. It makes him invisible. He's holding the harpe, a curved sword, which belongs to Zeus. And it's wrapped around the neck of Medusa, who's asleep. You know, she's just got two curved lines for her closed eyes. She is fast asleep and he's looking away from her behind him and it's like well he may be looking away from her in case she opens her eyes and turns him to stone sure but that doesn't look very likely she is so human in this picture she doesn't even have the snakes for hair which you do normally see um at this stage in in vase paintings she just looks like a beautiful young woman who is asleep and he has got a sword wrapping its curved blade around her neck he's looking behind him because behind him is athene offering him advice and there are two ways of looking at this vase painting, I think, in assessing Perseus. And I feel like both of them are true. The first is to say, look how incredibly favoured this hero is, because all these deities are helping him out. Hermes, Hades, Athene, Zeus, all of them are offering him advice or belongings in order to help him on his quest. And the other way of looking at it is to say, just how helpless are you? That all these gods have to turn out and give you a hand. It's one quest. Hercules is doing four of these a week, mate. And he hasn't got everyone help. In fact, if anything, he's got Hera throwing further obstacles at him as he goes. And you don't see him whining, do you? So there is, it, it's perfectly possible to see both these versions of Perseus in this single 
seen on the Metropolitan Museum vase. And again, in the, the there's a sort of sequel to that vase in the British Museum in London, where I live, which shows the scene immediately after the decapitation. And then he's got another sacred object, a divinely owned object, the kibesis, a, a backpack that you can use to store magical items, for example, a gorgon's head. And that is loaned to him in our literary sources and indeed in my novel by the Hesperides. So another set of goddesses coming in to help him out. And it's like, mate, what is wrong with you? You can't, none of this quest is you. So I really wanted to look at that tension, how you could be both this incredibly favoured son of a god, demigod, and simultaneously why you might be so needy that all these other gods had to come in and help out. And it does seem like the ancient Greeks would be in on the negative perception of Perseus on that vase, too, because Medusa is not depicted as, you know, a scary gorgon. She's like a woman that he is beheading while asleep. Like, that is not a heroic image. No, she is just a young woman. Yeah, exactly. And it does, it looks exactly as as troubling as that makes it sound. The Metropolitan Museum has many virtues, but one of the things that I really wish they would change is the prominence of that Perseus triumphant statue, the Canova from 1801, where a whiter than white neoclassical statue of Perseus holding up the head of Medusa is given pride of place, not just in a hall, it's a big piece, but also, you know, on their website, if you search for images of Perseus or Medusa, it comes up very very quickly and repeatedly. Whereas the Hydria, this extraordinary vase painting that is one of the most humane, most sympathetic portraits of Medusa anywhere, is like, it's on page nine or something of that. It's like, guys, this is one of the most important vases there is. I realize that I care more about vases than the average person, but come on, so do you, you're a museum. So yeah, I think they should have it. It should be in the entrance hall as you come in and everybody should be forced to go and look at it and write a 200 word essay on why patriarchy is bad before they're allowed into the rest of the museum. I agree. I think homework is required. (laughs) I'm Helena Bonham Carter and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Can we talk about Gorgons for a second? Because I just think that Gorgons are fascinating. What do we know about Gorgons in the ancient Greek world? Like, what is a Gorgon exactly? And how were they represented in ancient Greek artwork, which you you already touched on a bit, but let's talk about it a little more. Well, Gorgons are, um, they are the daughters of, there are three. Again, this is one of the things that people don't always know because that super influential Clash of the Titans version of Medusa has her living alone in a cave like monsters do. Um, But in fact, she's one of three sisters. There are lots of sets of three sisters in Greek myth, and this is one. And they are the daughters of a sea god and another sea god, Phorkis and Cato. They have this kind of liminal existence because they're the children, therefore, of the sea, essentially. And they are cousins to, I think, the Graii or sisters to the Graii who are also, you know, goddesses of the sea. And they live on land, but they have wings. So they sort of exist in this in-between state. They are goddesses, two of them. Uh, We can find that out in Hesiod's Theogony, the story of how the gods are born. He says there are three gorgons. They're called Seno, Euryale and Medusa. And the first two are immortal and the third one is mortal. And that's a wretched fate. And he throws it away and you're like, 
dude, I'm going to need a bit more than that. <laughs> so, hold on a second. I'll just, just write a novel and fill that in. Don't worry. Um, and so, you know, it's, so it's a strange thing. It's not explained why, why Medusa comes out differently, why she is mortal when they are not. But they generally have snakes for hair, not always, but often. They get beautified through time, as happens with the sort of 5th century beautification project and vase painting and sculpture, where monsters get prettier and men become, you know, even more muscular and gorgeous. But there's an incredible Hellenistic Medusa that we found, a, uh, I found an image of and shared the other week, where, so this is sort of 2nd, 3rd century BC, and she's got this beautiful kind of updo, and with just like tiny, tenderly, the occasional sort of curling snake coming off it. It's like, are you Medusa or are you from pride and prejudice because you look like you are going to a ball at Netherton right now. Um, but generally, the earlier the Gorgon, the more grotesque or strange, animalistic they are. They're probably, possibly not, but probably designed as a sort of protective, the Gorgon heads particularly, which are the earliest things. They're probably a way of giving a form, a physical shape to kind of nebulous fears about the natural world. So they tend to have very, very wide mouths, like the Joker, usually with a tongue lolling, so you can see that they're making a noise, the mouth is open, right? And if you've got a big wide mouth, you might as well use it to make a noise. There are lots of different attempts to derive their name, but one of the more plausible versions suggests that thunder is in there somewhere. So perhaps they make this loud noise. I mean, if you've ever been in a thunderstorm in Greece, they are extraordinary. <laughs> so it's like, oh yeah, no, I really get it. The weather is much more present here. <laughs> than where I live, that's for sure. And then the snakes for hair, obviously, you should be afraid of snakes in Greek myth, ask Eurydice, you cannot, she's in the underworld. That you can also associate it with the sort of lion's mane because there's a sort of big mass of hair. And almost all societies, I think, create these faces with extreme features and this sort of radial hair. Children do it when you ask them to draw the sun. So I think we do like that kind of image. So yeah, then we can see uh, tusks they tend to have, at least coming up from the bottom jaw and often also from the top jaw. So they're reminiscent of wild boar. Again, this might not seem very frightening to you, but ask Adonis, lover of Aphrodite slash Venus, you can't, he was killed by a boar and so on. So there are lots of different things in the natural world to be afraid of. And Gorgons sort of encapsulate, I was going to say in body, but it's mostly in a head, a lot of these different features. And as I say, when they get bodies also, they tend to get wings, but they tend to be in a kind of protective context in the ancient world, at least as much as in a sort of intimidating context. You know, people would put Gorgonea on their anti-fixes, like the, the bit that goes on the end of a, of a pipe on the outside of your building. So, I mean, of course you could argue that it's there to scare a pigeon or something, but it just seems more likely that it's got a protective role. And we often see them on temples of Artemis. Artemis obviously has one of her many, many roles in Greek myth is to be Potnia Thera, and she is the queen of wild animals. And if you look at the extraordinary uh, sculpture of Medusa from the pediment of the Temple of Artemis in Corfu, it's about 13 meters across. So she's gigantic because she's at the center point of it. But there she has Leopanthers, who are sort of mythological creatures, somewhere between a lion and a panther, obviously beautiful swirly fur. Oh, I can't tell you how lovely the fur is when you see it in real life. You can't see it on photographs very well, but oh, the swirly fur. So there she is in this role of being, you know, a, a sort of incredibly important goddess in terms of the natural world, quite aside from anything else. So although we don't think of Medusa as a goddess because she is mortal, she certainly appears alongside goddesses uh, or on the temples of goddesses all the time. And she does appear in the Theogony, which, you know, obviously is the story of gods. So it's super interesting to me how... The Gorgons, who are women or coded female, seem to embody all of these wild, natural animals that are so dangerous. 
seems like that may be telling us something about how the ancients felt about women and the natural world and the the correlation of the two. I mean, I know this makes me sound a lot stupider than I would generally claim to be, but it took me a really long time as somebody who has been vegetarian for 35 years and has only ever lived in cities to to realize that, of course, the natural world is a lot more frightening. In my whole life, the narrative about the natural world and human beings is that it is under threat from us, right? That we are the problem here. And that's always been the narrative. And I've had to really think and think what it must be like to be in a place where animals are the threat to you and that you never feel like a threat to them because there's loads more of them than there are of you, which of course was true for almost all of history. And I do see it's now still technically true in terms of bugs and so on. But, you know, it's just that kind of reset in our minds where you think that you can, you know, travel through time and and try and know how people thought. But sometimes you have to, you don't even notice that this one kind of fundamental belief underpinning how you approach things is obviously at odds with how they approach things. So yeah, my instinct is still to go, oh, a lovely fluffy animal. And it's like, no, <laughs> scary animal. Yeah, oh yeah, no, yeah. I always forget that. Yep. It's so true. Like I, I have a very different reaction, you know, to Heracles just killing all these animals, you know, like it's as an animal lover, I'm just like, no, don't kill the megafauna. Hydras are social creatures. You know, like I, I have this reaction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just let it hang out with some other hydras. It'll be fine. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's so misunderstood. Yeah, no, it, I, I mean, I do have to stop myself from doing this. And there are still moments where you can see my vegetarianism is sort of hiding within a book. I, I admitted to a group of school children a couple of books ago that if you, and it's still true now, that if you read my novels, I, I like sheep so much, they're never injured. If the safest place in my novel is somewhere near a sheep 100% of the time. So anytime there's a sacrifice, it's like, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm fond of a cow, but heifers will always get it before sheep do every single time in my books. <laughs> I have the same thing with horses. I'm like uh, writing books. You know, I have these war horses and not a scratch is going on those horses. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm completely with you. As I realize this is basically incredibly childish, but I can't get past it. It's like, no, I really like sheep. Nothing bad happens to a sheep on my watch. <laughs> but it is interesting that sort of, that you're living with nature that is particularly at this point in time and even even in present day that is more wild and dangerous than you know I grew up in on Long Island I've lived in London for like 16 years and my family relocated down to North Carolina and I'm down there for a minute and it's like there are legitimate like I'm not afraid of spiders but there are legitimately poisonous spiders that have to be sprayed for. They are legitimately poisonous snakes and all kinds of like things. There's crocodiles, I mean, or alligators, alligators, the littler ones. Like there's there's hawks that will take my tiny dog and into the sky and that'll be the end of it. So there's legitimately things to be afraid of in the actual wildlife, not that not really as much in the 21st century, but you can kind of see where that fear comes from. You really can. And you're right, of course, that in terms of the way that art is made, stories are told and, and sculptures are made and vases are painted, then women are the other and the natural world is the other. You know, so there is an overlap there. These things are being made in an urban environment. That's how come there's a market for beautiful vase paintings. And they're being made for a male market because women don't have money and can't use it. That's what happens when you have an incredibly patriarchal society. Obviously, things change by the time of Rome when there is some uh, women still don't have a vote, but they can own property and and indeed do. But you do see this very, I don't know, very limited outlook um, where this kind of tiny subset of people who live in a city 
um, of its male citizens who are going to be dramatically outnumbered by the enslaved people and obviously uh, also by the women. And there they're going to be, and particularly when you have wars that are in constant, uh, battles that are in constant war, like Athens in the 5th century, which has a 30-year war with the Peloponnese, only 50 years after it's had a couple of quite big wars with the Persians. So you would, in fact, have more women than men. No wonder they were slightly like uneasy about them. It is about dominating. Like You have these men who are dominating the wild and the nature and, and women, essentially. It's just a reminder, you know? Absolutely. And there's sort of acceptable ways to, to rebel against that dominion and unacceptable ways to do it. So in terms of our art, you can see lots and lots of vase paintings of Amazons who are very other insofar as they're women who are in a non-female space. They're women who are wearing non-female clothes. They're wearing these deviant garments, which are called trousers now, that nobody else would have worn, men or women, apart from people from the East who were effeminate and therefore definitely couldn't be considered, and so on and so on. So you see this very specific gendering of clothing and of people's roles. And men are on the battlefield and women aren't on the battlefield. So for Amazon to be there at all, it's like, what's going on here? And then they're strangely dressed and then they're riding horses. So there's loads of things. And yet, obviously, Greek men who bought vases absolutely loved them because you see loads and loads and loads of examples of them. Whereas conversely, Greek men who enjoyed the scene in the Agamemnon, the play by Aeschylus, where Agamemnon comes home and gets killed by his wife. It is not such a popular vase painting choice, almost as if, you know, when men were going out drinking with their male friends, let's imagine it was like a lowbrow version of Plato's Symposium. Perhaps they didn't want to think about their angry wives waiting for them at home. Whereas the sort of, ooh, the slight naughtiness of perving over an Amazon in her tight trousers probably was just about an acceptable bit of risk. And the last thing you wanted to be reminded of was what happened when you got home and your wife had an axe. Yeah, I mean, it's like domesticated versus undomesticated women, right? Because the the Amazon doesn't necessarily represent a threat to the home or your dominance at home as a man because they're outside of that sphere. Exactly. They're basically operating in the same world that Artemis operates in. They're sort of withdrawn from the city and therefore withdrawn from its conventions and its laws. So it's okay. They are lawless and strange, but that only adds to their otherness. And yes, they're still at a distance. And when it comes to it and you have a battle with the Amazons, there are three great Amazonomachies, then the Greek men usually win. And you get all these lovely images of men beating up on women. Yeah, there's an incredible bit in Pausanias where he's looking at, um, uh, I can't remember if it's a sculpture or a, I think it is a sculpture, a frieze. And, and he counts very carefully the number of male warriors and Amazon warriors fighting. And it's the same number on both sides. And he's obviously gone along and counted them all and tallied it. And it's like, the, the, it's important to these artists at the very least that these fights look pretty even. You know, that it takes a huge effort and obviously your natural supremacy as a Greek man in order to win, because otherwise, you know, it wouldn't be a satisfying victory. And you can always see this where, you know, the, the winning side obviously writes history that the, the side they beat in a war is often presented as being much more impressive than they actually were. So let's let's talk about our girl Medusa. <laughs> that was a very deep voice. <laughs> That's exactly what I call her, too. She's like, my Gorgon girl, I can't help her. As as we've said, she's the only mortal Gorgon. She's the daughter of monsters, the sister of monsters. Please note this is all in air quotes. Eventually she becomes a monster, but she doesn't start her life out that way. What are some misconceptions about Medusa that you want to clear up? I think the first is that she was a monster, because I obviously don't think of her in those terms, and nor do I think anyone else should, in truth. One of the kind of themes of the book is what is it that makes a monster? What is it that makes a hero? What is it that makes a monster? And 
you'll have to see, I guess, uh, what side you come down on. But for me, anyway, Medusa is is an incredibly protective gorgon. And as I have said, you know, there's a lot of evidence for that in the way that that gorgons in art are used through time um, as protective. And so she is very protective. And so the first and, and kind of greatest misconception about her, I think, is that she was a monster that you had to be scared of. And so, I, I mean, you can see people always think when they think of Medusa, I think of her from the outside, right? So essentially their first point of thinking with her is, oh, how would I stop her turning me to stone? And it's like, okay, well, I have a question and it's this. There's somebody else in Greek myth who can turn you to an inanimate object using just one of their senses. Who is it? Midas, he can turn you to gold. And yet when we think of Midas's story, do we ever think, how would I stop Midas turning me to gold? No, we think, what would it be like if everything I touched turned to gold? We imagine ourselves from the inside when we think about Midas, from the outside when we think about Medusa. We other her all the time. And even I, somebody who has spent their entire life looking at Greek myth, until I wrote the chapter about Medusa in Pandora's Jar, I didn't realize that she doesn't kill anyone in any literary source I've been able to find yet. She is always presented to us as this terrifying monster who can kill you with a glance. Okay, who does she kill? Hmm? And the answer is always, oh, all these people. Oh, you mean Perseus using her disembodied head, having murdered her as a weapon of mass destruction. He kills using her head. Sure. But in terms of when she is alive and has agency, who does she kill? And if you can kill something by just looking at it, then the very act of not doing that must imply a huge amount of choice, right? Because you would do it by accident unless you withdrew, which in my version is how she responds when this power unasked for is given to her. Her answer to that is to try and work out how she can live without causing any harm or any further harm. And that, it seemed to me, was an incredibly noble quest for her. And so for me, she is a hero. I realise as the story is traditionally told, it's Perseus who is the hero. And certainly in terms of him being a I was going to say, in terms of him being a protagonist, I suppose you could argue that he's not the protagonist in my novel, nor is he the antagonist, in fact. And in our ancient sources, until Ovid, I think, who, who tells probably the longest version of it that we have in, in ancient literature, it doesn't tend to be from Perseus's perspective either. You know, it's, it's only when Ovid comes along and, and tells the story all about Perseus that he becomes the protagonist in, a, in an overcoming the monster story rather than the opposite way around. So I wanted people to know that... She is somebody who has the capacity to cause incredible harm and the absolute commitment to not doing that. And it seemed to me that if anything was beautiful, it might be that. That's so interesting because I think I think that's also supported with the you know ancient sources and the archaeology of you know what we know about Medusa because she does she doesn't live near people. She withdraws and lives in a cave. Yeah, I mean, I worked really closely with sources, and particularly there aren't that many literary sources. Um, and, and those that there are are very brief, pretty much. The Ovid is the longest, as I say. There's a little bit in Pindar, there's a bit in Hesiod, but there's not loads. There's a lost play called the Forkides, the Daughters of Forkis, but there are no fragments, I think, even surviving. So this is a lot of this comes from vase paintings and from sort of slightly more tangential sources from sculpture as well. And, and what we get, at least in sculpture, is this sense of creatures in the Gorgons who are much more complicated and strange than they are monstrous. 
that they have this sort of, you know, the case in point, I guess, is that in the Odyssey, when Odysseus goes down to the underworld and has his communing with the dead, the Nequia, he suddenly at the end of it panics that Persephone might send a Gorgon head after him and he does a runner. So clearly the Gorgon head is three-dimensional, mobile and can kill. And and yet there's no there's no actual reason for this fear. He just suddenly panics. And, you know, I'm obviously would hesitate to say, did you need a way to finish that bit, Homer? But he just suddenly gets afraid. He's like, oh, I better go. I mean, did he maybe think I might deserve a Gorgon head coming after me for some of the stuff I've done? I don't suppose for a moment he did. He's not a character blessed with self-awareness or reflection, although he has many other virtues. I lo- also love the idea of the dread Persephone having gorgon heads at her fingertips. Absolutely, and just s- sort of swooping them at you as and when required. But then look at the Iliad, which is, if anything, slightly older probably than the Odyssey, and the Agamemnon has a gorgon head painted on his shield. So, of course, you could argue that that's just there to scare your opponent. I guess my response to that would be that the most detailed analysis we have of any shield design anywhere, probably, but certainly at that point, is the shield that Hephaestus makes for Achilles for him to return to the fighting after the death of Patroclus. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. And that, it's an incredibly detailed narrative story that he he puts onto the shield. So, yes, of course, it's possible that you just put a scary monster on your shield to scare the, the, the opponent. But it seems more likely, given that it's the shield specifically that he's painted on, that it's there to protect him. That's literally what the word means. Oh. I find that comparison between like Medusa and Midas really fascinating, because in particular, I think it's, I think it's an Ovid that Midas is able to have his sort of like golden gift curse washed away and live a, a normal life. Yeah, I ask audiences often why he doesn't get decapitated on the way, because he has to walk a couple of days away, I think, to a river where it has its source so that he can have his gilding power washed away. And he does it and nobody beheads him. And, you know, you don't even need to behead him if you want to be able to get gold any time. You could just take off a finger or a toe, right? You don't need a cabesis to put his body parts in. You could just have a small golden mitten or something and pick up his disembodied toe with that and then just press it against things for a couple of days and it wouldn't even matter if it sort of withered away it would be fine but nobody does it because Midas is entitled to bodily integrity so you can imagine how incredibly impatient I am at the idea that Medusa isn't. I'm actually now enraged thinking about this because it's so true. Yeah welcome to how I live. Yeah well thanks for drawing me into that. Yeah anytime. Also we covered Medusa in our book too um, Women in Myth and I came down very much she's in the model monster section she's not a monster there's a lot of women who are called monsters who are not monsters but what i was going to say is the interesting thing to me here also is Medusa is cursed by athene who like never ever goes back on on her curses whereas midas is cursed by dionysus and i feel like dionysus is the more sort of like trickster liminal yeah but he isn't cursed is he he's rewarded i mean he asks for a wish he, I mean, he does get cursed later, doesn't he? When he asks, he's annoying again and he gets donkey ears. But even that isn't that bad. It's like it's donkey ears. What if you meet Titania? You're going to be quids in, mate. Go for it. Well, and he can just hide them under a hat. Exactly. Or what if there are a lot of flies? You might want donkey ears. Does anyone ever think of that? No, they do not. Also, think about all the secrets you'd hear. Another valid point. Plus, what if you liked carrots? I mean, it just it's a gift that keeps on giving, frankly, as curses go. Listen, if you're going to be cursed, might as well be cursed by Dionysus and not Athene. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not necessarily in the Bacchae, but in all other contexts, yes. In all other contexts, yeah. I mean... Yeah, in the Bacchae, a bit less so. <laughs> to be fair, in the Bacchae, he kind of got what he deserved. <laughs> I mean, he is asking for it, I agree. It's a difficult time for a family. Let's never go too far. Yeah, we're not going down that <laughs> <way>. <laughs> <laughs> Listen... 
Maybe it's not a good idea to invite curses from the gods in general. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Generally, best to move through life not comparing yourself favorably to a god or goddess kind of way. Maybe don't say how great you are at weaving. Maybe don't say how much better you are at singing than, say, a muse. I, go for it if you want, but I wouldn't, is all I'm saying. Or like how you had more kids than Lita. Yes, maybe don't mention that. I mean, just all these things could just, you could just not say it. What's the worst that could happen if you didn't say it? Nothing at all. So yes, that would be my suggestion. It's hard with Athene because I know, you know, you want her to be, that they should like each other, you know, and it was painful to write at times because I do really love her, but she behaves appallingly. She is incredibly monstrous over and over again. And at least in part, that's because her values are incredibly patriarchal, because obviously, in, in a way, she's, again, the daughter of the ultimate patriarch, just like Perseus is his son. They are technically sort of half siblings, although she's absolutely horrified when Hermes points that out. And so I, I, I think, you know, because she grows up without a mother, she has none of that for reasons, obviously, uh, explained quite early on in, in Stone Blind. She, she doesn't have any of that kind of experience with women closely in in her formative years obviously she's born fully formed but still when she's new if not young she doesn't have women around her who, who can particularly relate to her or to whom she can relate so you know there's that moment in the Eumenides where she says I always take the man's side because you know I don't have a mother and you're like well you did have a, oh never mind it's okay you know she's she's had this uh, existence which is so cut off from female characters it's no wonder she doesn't value them to her there it's that sort of smurfette thing as it is known when it's in film you know where you have one female character with like six or seven male characters around them and they're like i'm one of the boys and you go oh, no, no, no. this is raising some questions because of course what we're still doing is downgrading the experience of being female In Stoneblind, Medusa and Poseidon discuss beauty in a very integral scene. They have very different views on what beauty means. For Medusa, beauty is tied to love, protection, community, and family. Beauty is ordinary. It's the ordinary love and compassion we give to our family and loved ones. It's the kindness that we bestow on others. But for Poseidon, beauty is something he desires, he wants to possess, and ultimately destroy. Beauty for Poseidon is power. Can you tell us where the inspiration for these two different views on beauty came from and if it reflects ancient views on beauty? Well, I think it probably asks a lot more of an audience than an ancient one would have been likely to be thinking about. Obviously, you do get questions about what beauty is. Plato's Hippias Major, I think, I'm pretty sure it's the Hippias Major, asks the question, what is beauty? Uh, and in the end, they conclude that it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult to define. You're like, yeah, no kidding. You know, they can come up with examples of things which are beautiful, but they can't come up with a quality that makes all those different beautiful things beautiful. And obviously, Platonic language is a bit baffling to us, but he's like, what's the one thing that all these beautiful objects partake of? And they don't really successfully manage. It's only a short dialogue, but they don't really successfully manage to to answer it. And so in the end, Hippias goes, oh, beauty is difficult, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it is. And so essentially that, it is that dialogue there, which is underpinning my reading of this scene. I doubt it will come as a huge surprise to you that um, I was thinking, of course, of some of the more unpleasant men of the Me Too movement when I wrote Poseidon in this book. And that sense that you could surround yourself by young and beautiful women and sometimes young and beautiful men. 
because you are no longer young and perhaps you were never beautiful. And what you want to do is own this thing and possess it and have its beauty reflect your status. And then inevitably you will destroy it. And it seemed to me that was such an interesting, it was such an unquestioned value for such a long time. We might have disapproved of it or been afraid of it, but we didn't question the notion, I think, that you as a very, very powerful film mogul, for example, might want to possess young and beautiful people who were acting in your films. And it seems to me a, a really recent shift that we are at least saying, that's actually quite weird and creepy, isn't it? As opposed to, you know, for a long time, it felt like that bit in the Melian dialogue where they're discussing the nomos versus debate and the Athenians say, you know, well, the powerful do what they want and the weak just have to put up with it. And it felt to me like that was the real change with Me Too rather than a particular individual. It's where we went, oh, no, sorry, it doesn't have to be like that. Sorry, my mistake. <laughs> Draw a line, start again. Let's try this a second time. And so I was trying to offer, I think, an alternative reading of what beauty might be for Medusa, who has only grown up with what other people will tell her are monsters as her sisters. And yet for her, these sisters are literally lifesavers. She's delivered to them as a baby, having been abandoned by her parents. And these two goddesses, unlike the Olympian goddesses who live in this very lofty environment, never changing, never registering change. These goddesses have chosen to live at ground level. You know, they are right by the sea. They're on the land. They're not too near people because they're scary, but they choose to live down and not in the kind of lofty mists. I thought very much when I started this book that its central kind of tension would come from that bit in Hesiod where they're immortal and she's mortal. And what happens when you kind of, and it became clear so fast that actually the tension was about change that if you're mortal you change all the time right and and when you're immortal you barely register time happening in order to change so it's like well what will happen when this tiny baby who changes every minute practically appears in the lives of these goddesses who aren't used to acknowledging change in sort of much more than a year or a season or 10 or 50 and the answer is of course that they start to change because you can't love without changing and so she has grown up with this extremely limited interaction with other creatures, but she's only been shown incredible love and a really particular kind of sisterly love, which I think is different in lots of ways from parental love. So certainly people have asked me about this sort of maternal quality to those two Gorgons, but to me, they will always be sisters rather than replacement mothers. And so I thought, well, that would be what you would consider to be beautiful. The thing that you grow up with, there's that moment when you move away from home for the first time, you know, when you suddenly realize that thing that you thought everyone did is just your weird family. And you're like, oh, I thought everyone said that. Mm. Um, and so essentially it's that moment, but in a, a much more difficult context. It's the bit where it's literally never occurred to her that her sisters aren't beautiful. So to have somebody saying, well, obviously they aren't their monsters. It's just, it's, it's almost meaningless to her. It's like he's made a total category error. And the truth of it is, I agree with her. Absolutely. Like, what does it mean to call someone a monster who's taken care of you your whole life? Yeah. But not just you, like the sheep who like learn to cook because you need food and they don't need food. Like just all of the wonderful examples in that scene, which readers will get to. Like I, I literally, could, I was just floored. My brain was blown. It was just so beautiful how she saw love and how that worked for her and how 
beautiful, all the ordinary, but also amazing things these goddesses did to show her that they loved her. Yeah, I really, really liked writing these scenes. I think probably when it comes to it, Uriali is probably secretly my favourite character in the book, I think. Everyone assumes it'll be Medusa, and in lots of ways it is, but man, there's something about a goddess who can look at, you know, when you've just fallen and hurt yourself and gone, did that rock just do that and smack it? And you're like, yeah, that's the level I'm working at. Hello, yes, please, thank you. She's the one with the sheep, right? She is the one with the sheep, yeah. I was going to say... Of course, she's your favorite. <laughs> of course, she's my favorite. I gave her sheep. Is that not enough to reveal it? Like, the secret code is not that secret. <laughs> That's pretty great. <laughs> so beauty in mythology is dangerous. Medusa's beauty makes her the object of Poseidon's cruelty. Helen's beauty starts a war, quote unquote. Why is female beauty so dangerous to the ancient Greeks? And what does it tell us about their fears and beliefs? Well, I mean, there's, it's interesting that you mentioned Helen, because I'm pretty sure there must be other examples, but I can only think of two off the top of my head. One is Helen and one is Medusa, where they are so beautiful as young women that we are told by our literary sources that men flock from all across the Greek world in order to try and marry them. Oh, there's um, Psyche. Right, there we go. So there's a third. And there must be a few more, but there's not many. And so Medusa is very beautiful when she's young, as we're told by uh, Ovid, amongst others. Um, Helen obviously marries out. She marries Menelaus and then is removed from the marriage market, uh, at least temporarily. And Medusa is cursed. And so it's at that point that they experience their two differing relationships, I suppose, with their, their own beauty. And for Helen, it looks like it's a lot more morally difficult than anything else you know she she accepts responsibility for example in the Iliad for having started the Trojan War she gets all the blame that Paris never seems to get very much of and there's an extraordinary very upsetting fragment of a Sophocles play called the demand for Helen's return in which she's depicted about to drink bull's blood it's poisonous so she's trying to take her own life by poison and it's a really really harrowing idea that being beautiful is so ruinous and you're seen as being morally debatable as soon as you're beautiful that she has this very for me anyway when I think about Helen and certainly when I wrote her in ships she has a very ambivalent relationship with her own beauty how could she not and Medusa obviously is a really unusual example there are a few other goddesses or families uh, relations to to gods I suppose I should say because she's not technically a goddess where they're suddenly turned into something more monstrous the same kind of thing happens to Scylla for example. And it's like, well, we assume at that point that your life is over because now you're ugly and you used to be beautiful. But the truth of it is, of course, that will happen to all of us. You know, if we're lucky enough to live long, we probably won't look as beautiful to our eyes, let alone to anyone else's, but to our eyes as we did when we were young. The great curse, of course, of being young is that you can't see how great you look until you're old and you look at pictures of how great you used to look. And then you're like, oh, what was I thinking? What on earth was I doing? And so I suppose it seemed to me there was really scope to, to sort of to bring my ancient middle-aged eyes into play and say, well, yes, there are going to be creatures in this narrative who are beyond beautiful. The Hesperides are all glorious and golden and perfect in every possible way. But there is beauty elsewhere too. And it seemed to me just a, a really necessary corrective to say, well, what can also be beautiful. For the ancient Greeks, I think the idea of beauty, as we've established, was extremely complicated um, and that things could sound beautiful and look beautiful. And those two things were different and yet 
somehow also the same. And perhaps we're still trying to find a, a way of, I mean, often I think it's used as a way of justifying preference. You know, we say, oh, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that this is my favorite or anything, but obviously it's beautiful. Well, is that obvious to whom and why? And, you know, we all value different things. Societies value different things. So if, if you want to, if you want to see how much notions of beauty change through time, my absolute best suggestion to you is that you look at images of Helen of Sparta, Helen of Troy, as she'll become from any time in history and look at how they change. Look at what she looks like on a Greek vase painting. Uh, where people go, oh, and, and she's supposed to be the face that launched that. Yeah, it's almost like our ideals of beauty have changed, right? <laughs> so what an extraordinary thought. And then you look at her in, for example, you know, pre-Raphaelite paintings, and she suddenly looks this kind of incredibly passive, pretty girl. And it's like, well, I mean, sure, she's still really pretty. Is she beautiful, I guess? Yeah, okay. One of the things I like so much about Helen and Euripides and Homer is that she's so powerful. You know, she's a daughter of Zeus. Don't mess with her is often her kind of subtext. The moment where she delivers that extraordinary rebuttal to Hecabe in um, Trojan Women, Euripides Troides, it's just, it's absolutely breathtaking. It makes you realise that in the off-season, Euripides could have been making quite good money as a legal speechwriter. And so it seems a shame to me that we've lost her kind of cleverness, her facility with language as has been kind of downgraded because we just all obsessed what must it be to be so beautiful that men will die for you well sure but she's also this incredible you know she's this incredible weaver in the Iliad she's weaving the story of the Iliad into a tapestry as the Iliad progresses she is essentially the embodiment of Homer within the poem she's the one who's making the story about the Trojan War you know who else is doing that oh me too Homer so if the world's most beautiful woman is also the embodiment of this bard well then which bit of her is the bit that's beautiful. Is it the poetry? Is it the art? Is it what she looks like? I, I'm astonished that people feel so confident they can just claim one or the other. And it's so interesting that like our idea or, you know, society's idea of beauty has changed to the point where in much later paintings, it's like beauty and passivity were the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely see how that has happened. I just don't have to like it. <laughs> so I don't. <laughs> and that's the importance of the work that you do. It's like drawing attention to this stuff and rewriting that narrative. Yeah, that's always, you know, at least part of the plan. I want to tell you a story that makes you re-examine what you thought you already knew. Of course I do. Um, but I also sometimes want to make you ask a question, you know, what does it mean to be a hero? What does it mean to be a monster? What does it mean to be beautiful? What does it mean to be ugly? And Stoneblind was my attempt to answer some of those questions this time. I have a question. Is Helen the only female daughter of a god? Of any god or of Zeus in particular? I know of Zeus in particular, I think, but... Well, Medusa. Yeah, Medusa. Oh, I guess Penthesilea is the other obvious choice because she's the daughter of Ares, right? So, yeah, the daughter of great-hearted Ares, to give him his full <laughs> billing, his matinee idol billing. Forgot Ares had a, had a few. Yes, that's true. But yeah, I think with Helen, she is the one who most closely resembles in terms of her progression from sort of mortal existence to eventual immortality. I guess she is closest to Heracles in that regard. Why do you think so many monsters in Greek mythology are female? Yeah, it's a good question. And one I may yet answer in a longer form um, at a later point. I think the othering of women and the female in general in ancient societies obviously and inevitably leads to a sort of exoticization of them and monsters are part of that. So 
you get these kind of hybrid creatures that aren't female, like centaurs, I guess, or satyrs. And it, you could argue pretty legitimately that they're as exoticized in their way as female monsters, the harpies or the sirens. But there's certainly a real taste for female monsters in Greek myth. I mean, the thing that you have to remember is that when you have a patriarchal society, things that they are scared of definitely include women with power. You know, the undeniable truth about the Gorgons is that they reflect the male fear of the female gaze. Being seen for who you are can literally kill you. Thank goodness they don't have all the power in society as well. Otherwise, that'd be, oh, hang on. Like when you think about how how fragile the construction of masculinity is in ancient Greek society and like how much your gender identity relies on dominating the women around you, the idea of a woman seeing you must be terrifying. I mean, it, it seems so, doesn't it? I've argued before and I'll continue to argue, I suspect, that the Iliad is basically an array of patterns of what it means to be a man. You know, different ways of masculinity, different ideals of masculinity are offered all the way through the Iliad. It's one of the things about it which is so interesting. But it does happen to the almost exclusion of any female voices. There are virtually no female voices in the Iliad. We move over to the Odyssey, where there's a lot less exploration of the male condition in general. And what you instead have is, you know, a man being sidetracked by one adventure after another. And, you know, many of which involve sexy women who just want to entrap him for sex and dominate him. I've said it before and I will say it again. Of the 10 years that he spends getting home from Troy, fully eight of them are spent horizontal. So it's still an adventure, but it's a horizontal adventure. And that's not quite the same seafaring antics that people are expecting. Four fifths of that adventure is horizontal. That's all I'm saying. Four fifths. All these sexy witches keep stopping me from going back home. Yeah, busy, busy, busy. (laughs) And it's only at the very end that he's like, oh, I need to go home now. It's been so long. I fathered so many illegitimate children and lost all of my sailors. Female monsters of various kinds, some of which are sexy, some of which are not, some of which appear to be embodiments of entire vaginas. Charybdis, I don't know. Two seasons ago, we looked at um, gender in mythology and in ancient Greece and Rome, and we looked at the Iliad, and that's essentially the same feelings I had as like the Iliad, particularly the story of Agamemnon and Achilles and their feelings towards each other, is really a look at that masculinity and what it means to be a man in that society at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is one of those great myths, isn't it? This notion of women being emotional and men not being and the Iliad obviously completely puts paid to it from the get-go you just have to ignore the fact that that they should they do nothing but show emotion their emotions are pain and anger their jealousy their fear anxiety it's an incredibly it's, it's a poem which is literally packed with emotional men expressing emotions in really positive and really negative ways all the time and yet, you know, you very rarely see it considered in those terms. I, at some point, somebody's going to write the most incredible re-evaluation of the Iliad or reimagining of the Iliad, focusing on the emotions of men. And I'm, I'm going to give them the biggest quote for the cover anytime they want. I'm just, I can't wait for it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they cry. They, they really do. And the, the emotions they feel are named and as we would see them, they're positive, but we wouldn't necessarily see them as masculine. You know, it's like, well, why? Who made that rule? Not the Greeks. Look, they're here doing it. These greatest heroes who, you know, live to fight and be famed long past death. They're doing it. How did we lose our way? Well, and it's so interesting. We only know like bits at the beginning through sort of like plays and mythology fragments of how they get where they're going. And then the last, you know, six months, year of the war when everything goes 
sort of off kilter. Like we don't see all of the many battles and moments in between when, you know, they're experiencing what war would have been like and how we got from young Achilles, who was promised to marry Iphigenia, which is never going to happen, to Achilles at the end. Yeah. I mean, you know, you only have to look at something like Sophocles' Ajax or indeed the Philoctetes to see what war can do to a man. I've written it and I will continue to repeat it. There are no winners in war. There are only survivors. And being on the side that doesn't lose doesn't guarantee that you survive. So the damage, the damage done to these men is extraordinary. And the damage done to Odysseus, you know, you see this incredible, horrifying killing spree when he returns to Ithaca. And it's like, well, where does that come from? And the answer is, isn't it that this is this is what 10 years of war suddenly look like when they pour out of one man's body? He brought the front back home with him, right? Like he brought the war back home with him. That's that's what that means. I agree. Let's talk a little bit about some of the monstrous women in mythology who are human women, like Clytemnestra, Medea, even Jocasta. They all get a terrible reputation in mythology, even though their husbands do horrible things as well. What common qualities in ordinary women do you see that gets them coded as monstrous in Greek mythology? Well, Medea is very quick to say it's her cleverness, isn't it, that gets her coded as monstrous. And that's probably true. It's certainly true for Clytemnestra. She's very clever. She's completely unemotional. And you can see in something like Tacitus when he's writing about Agrippina the Younger, the mother of Nero, it's the same thing. He, he accuses of having an almost masculine power. When you want to disapprove of women, and rest assured Tacitus does, then you can go one of multiple ways, and he'll do all of them pretty well over the wives of Claudius. So number three, Messalina, is dismissed as being slutty. She's always having sex. She's always having sex with people who aren't Claudius. She conducts a false marriage with somebody. She had sex with lots of men all night. She's never satisfied. So, you know, good, time-honoured, old-fashioned, she's slutty and therefore she's evil version. And then we have Agrippina the Younger, his fourth wife, who is the reverse of Messalina because this is how they're going to be, you know, construed in opposite ways, of course. And that's problematic too. So the thing that's wrong with her is that she doesn't care enough about sex. She's far too concerned about power. And so what you see, of course, is no matter which way women go, if they're noticed, you know, there's there's a reason why Pericles gives that speech, uh, you know, the funeral speech in book two of, I think, book two of uh, Thucydides, where he says, oh, just a few words about women at the end. He says, you know, your greatest glory is to not be talked about at all, either in praise or, or with blame. So that's a one step down from Victorian society where, you know, women and children were seen but not heard. Now you have to be not seen at all <laughs> or heard. Or anything else. Could you just not exist? That'd be great. If we could just reproduce without you, that'd be perfect, is essentially his mindset. And of course, the great joy of it is that Pericles was in a kind of common law marriage, I guess, with the most notorious woman in the whole of Athens, Aspasia. So the only woman who everyone was talking about, who comic playwrights were talking about, and, uh, you know, I think she's the only human woman, non-mythical, mentioned by Plato at all in all the extant works of, of his. So yeah, the big celebrity woman is the woman that the guy who says women shouldn't do anything or get, get talked about ends up with. It's like, well, thank goodness we've grown out of having politicians say one thing and do another. But yeah, I think any kind of time that women do anything noteworthy that involves their agency, then what we see is a response which pushes back against it. And so actually, Jocasta is a really interesting sort of counterexample because her wrongs, as they are um, perceived to be by her, at least in Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus the King, are done unknowingly. And in other sources, therefore, it seems more appropriate, perhaps, that she doesn't take responsibility in the same way. So in Euripides' Phoenician Women, which is set after the events of Oedipus Tyrannus, she hasn't died, she hasn't killed herself. 
at the end of the previous bit of the story, she she is living on as a sort of queen mothery type diplomat as her two warring sons are at odds with one another. She has this sort of elder stateswoman role. It's Oedipus who is seen as the shameful figure and who has been basically locked up in a dungeon in the palace because everyone is ashamed of him, but she isn't treated as being a cause of shame at all. So sometimes it depends on the source that we have. You know, we've lost between 97 and 99% of ancient literature. So we always have to remember that to say we have a tiny percentage, it, you have to properly think about what that means. And so we have lost an enormous amount of what might have been interesting counterexamples. We do know from Aristophanes that the notion of women being angry with Euripides for depicting them as being crooks and murderers and badly behaved it obviously existed way back in the fifth century because we see a, a very funny sequence where the women of Athens are already angry with him for giving away their secrets of how badly they behave. They're trying to beat him up for his uh, nefarious tale-telling. So, you know, the, there's definitely a suggestion that in this very patriarchal society like fifth century Athens was, that women were somehow still something to be afraid of, that they were there going, ooh, that Euripides, but how much actual clout they had when they very probably weren't even allowed to go to the theatre. Who knows? You know, the thought of women having agency is what makes them monstrous in this view is something we found in the ancient Roman sources too, because we've done a bunch of episodes around this. This is what Messalina and Agrippina have in common. Like Messalina has sexual agency. Agrippina has agency where it comes to her power. And if you look at how the Romans talk about which women have masculine qualities, it's the women who are taking agency to do something rather than, you know, just kind of sitting around and allowing men to dictate their lives. Exactly. And I'm always really suspicious when there are, there are ways of framing these kinds of debates which sound like compliments but are definitely insults. And so, for example, when Agamemnon talks about Penelope in the Odyssey, he's in the underworld, he says, you know, oh, lucky son of Laertes, i.e. Odysseus, uh, the gods will write a poem about incredible Penelope because she's so brilliant. Not like my wife! <laughs> it's like, oh my God, how many seconds did you think about someone who wasn't you in this conversation? Was it four? Was it maybe four before you turn around to boo-hoo, it's hard being me? And that's not unusual. So, you know, it's like, oh, let's all praise Penelope, says man who has at most met her twice and the most recent time 20 years ago. You know, that this is praise being doled out in order to criticize other women. And I do see that Agamemnon can probably claim a point by virtue of the fact that he's literally dead because of the actions of his wife. Uh, but in the Iliad, of course, it's Aegisthus who kills him and not Clytemestra. So she did hack him to death at the bath. I mean, there is that. <laughs> but not in Homer. She does in Aeschylus. In Homer, it's Aegisthus who does it. So, you know, she is less, it, it's more traditional love triangle story in Homer. It's when Aeschylus gets hold of it, she becomes a bit more proactive. And then she's even scarier. At least in the Iliad, she's just unfaithful <laughs> and to a man. He did have their daughter human sacrificed for a wind. Not unjustified. <laughs> again, again. Yeah, I'm very much on her side. I'm very much on her side. Yeah. I mean, I don't believe she was taken over. The daughter was like saved by Artemis. The daughter was sacrificed. There's that whole other. Yeah, don't follow that. Well, Professor Edith Hall has written very brilliantly, as she does on virtually everything about the two different versions of Clytemestra that we see in sources, what she describes as the uh, uterine Clytemestra and the clitoral Clytemestra. So the mother one, which we see in Aeschylus, and the sex one who we see in, for example, Ovid or elsewhere. So it's like, what's she driven by? The desire to avenge her daughter or the desire to have a hot young boyfriend? Yes. Can't it be both? Is <laughs> that so wrong? <laughs> Can the answer be yes? <laughs> Just yes. <laughs> it a hundred percent it's both. Yeah, I mean, we're all thinking it. 
I also think like one of the things that never is really discussed is when these men come home from war, these women have essentially been ruling in their absence. Absolutely. Well, that's certainly true for Clytemnestra. I mean, the language is really specific in, in the Agamemnon, the Aeschylus. The language is that she is ruling. She has power. Kratos is the word, the root of democracy, for example. So she's not just got authority because she's married to the king. She's ruling. You're absolutely right. And of course, when the chorus of old men are appalled that she's killed Agamemnon later in that play, and they say, you know, you can't do this. You'll be pursued by the Furies and you deserve it. And you shouldn't have done it and do this and do that. And she says, do you want to go outside for a fight? Wow. I love that so much. I do. I'm excited. Did you just, did you just, to use the language of my background, offer them out? <laughs> it's, it sounds a little like you did. <laughs> so, you know, and they're too scared. And I would confidently bet money she could take them. She wouldn't have made the offer otherwise. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. She does remind me a lot of Agrippina the Younger. But these things are modeled, aren't they? So he was modeling some of the things that she is supposed to have said or that he is supposed to have said about each other, that Nero or Agrippina were supposed to have said of each other, were in fact lines from Roman tragedies that were performed, uh, either the Oedipus or the Orestes Clytemnestra narratives. There are echoes here with these plays that are no longer known to us, but they were certainly being quoted. And so, yeah, I think our Roman sources just couldn't resist the temptation to add a bit of Greek. Well, you know, I made a documentary many years ago about how uh, soap operas echo lots of the tropes of Greek tragedy. And I went to speak to the people who wrote on a British show called EastEnders, and certainly East End of London. Obviously, lots of soap operas have a place in their title like Aristotle would want. They have unity of time and unity of place. And um, I asked them how they kind of put Greek stuff into their Greek tragedies into their storylines. And this guy said, yeah, yeah, we do do that. We've got these ideas boards and there's like news clippings from these different newspapers. We think, oh yeah, that would work with that or this might work or we'll keep it for later because that's interesting, but we haven't got right home for it yet. And also on that board, we'll have index cards that have got Greek plays written on them. And I said, seriously, uh, he said, yeah, sometimes if we're looking at the plot for sort of season arc, as it were, uh, for this chunk of time, we look at it and it's like, how could we Greek it up? <laughs> Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely right. How can you Greek it up? So yes, having I've made that my mantra, obviously, for my career subsequently. My brain's also now just jumped to Boudicca as just a building on this as well when you get to that in the ancient Roman sources, because like a lot of her stuff is... Yeah, and a gorgeous example of somebody who very probably wasn't as dangerous as she was decided by Roman sources. Obviously, Tacitus is going to say she was terrifying because his father-in-law went and fought in Britain, so she must be the worst that there'd ever been, etc., etc. And yet, within one year of her having apparently burned London to the ground, there are now, we've found the Bloomberg tablets from London, these incredible wooden tablets that were found in the foundations of a building being built for Bloomberg. And they are receipts and, and stuff from literally one year later. So if London was burned to the ground, it was really quickly rebuilt. So yeah, how dangerous was she? How, how much of London was burned? Was it enough for the bureaucracy of transporting goods across the Roman Empire to be held up? Not by very long, it seems. So yeah, your guess is as good as mine. There is that burn layer. Yeah, but how much was there? And then you have to think about how big was London at the time? What was the bigger area like? And everything comes down to us through the conquerors. You had a certain lens they wanted to portray when talking about her and bigging up other people. So it's it's difficult. Yeah. And Tacitus is a real keen practitioner of the noble savage phenomenon where whoever's fighting against the Romans is usually given some beautiful, incredibly articulate critique of them, in particularly the characteristics which Tacitus himself also doesn't like. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there's that 
There's that incredible speech. It's a Scottish leader, like a Caledonian leader, who is given this speech. I think his name means like the swordsman or something, but I'm blanking on what it is. Wait, wasn't it the Welsh guy? It was not Caratuckus. Absolutely not. He wasn't Welsh anyway, but he's the one who said, you guys create a wasteland and call it peace. That's where it comes from. Oh, Calgacus is his name. Yeah, Calgacus. That's what it is. Yes. <laughs> you literally wake me up in the middle of the night and ask me to pronounce Desmophoriad Zeusite. I'd be right there for you. Yes. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So I forget things all the time that I'm like very intimate with. I'll text you at 4 a.m. Get ready. Honestly, fine. You wouldn't be the only person who does it. Don't worry. I asked Jen. I already do that. <laughs> She does. <laughs> <laughs> um, what female monster or monstrous woman in Greek mythology do you identify with the most? I mean, I'm afraid the trouble is that I am a serial monogamist in this and all matters. And so whoever I'm writing, I, I properly am inside them for that time. And I honestly feel like their behavior is reasonable because to them, it usually, and very few people, I think, go about their lives going, how can I behave in the most unreasonable way possible? You know, even people who behave appallingly generally think they've got a point or that they've been somehow victimized, which excuses it or whatever. And so the terrible, terrible truth is that as I am writing them, even the worst people seem to me to be understandable and defensible. So yeah, the more time I spend writing novels, the more measured I seem to be becoming as a person. I can't imagine it'll last. So let's hope it doesn't. But yeah, I, I found myself sympathizing with and uh, agreeing with more terrible, monstrous women than anyone should really do in one lifetime and quite a few monstrous goddesses. But there you go. I mean, that is understandable. I frequently find myself siding with the villain in various contexts as well. And I think that's part of being a writer because you have to get into the heads of these characters in order to make them make sense. So that's what winds up happening. Yeah, you absolutely do. Because what's the alternative is that you just present people with somebody who basically twirls a metaphorical moustache and goes, ha ha ha, I'm going to get you next time. It's like, well, I, you know, tempting as that is, uh, no, <laughs> that's, that's not going to work. So yeah, it's a question of trying to create characters that when the, re I mean, I want, I want the reader to feel all the emotions that I felt when I was writing Stone Blind or Ships um, or Jocasta. I want them to have that really intense emotional experience that I had. And if I don't feel it, how will they? Thank you so much for coming on the show, Natalie. This has been absolutely incredible. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You are most welcome. Stoneblind is out now in hardback, ebook, and audio. And where can people find you on the interwebs if they should wish to or... Oh, they can find me on Twitter, they can find me on Instagram, and they can find me on Facebook. I am around and I am there. So come and find me and say hello. At Natalie Haynes in all various places. At Natalie Haynes author, I think. I should know this, but yes. Oh, no lies. Facebook, I am uh, there as Natalie Haynes stand-up classicist, because that is uh, obviously a, based on the title of the podcast and radio show I make for the BBC. But the others, yeah, I think I'm there as Natalie Haynes author. Thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you all so much for listening and we will see you next week. Mm -hmm.